Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. idea what your week has had in store for you, but I believe that we're gathered together this morning to open up God's Word, and then He's got a Word for each one of us. I know there's people at different places in your spiritual journey and different experiences you've had coming up to this moment, but I believe God's got something to say to each one of us. And So I'm going to pray for us, and uh, then we're going to open up the Scriptures this morning. Let me pray. Father, thank you that we get to open up your Word, and I pray for, for our time together, that we have an encounter with you, and that you'd change us. And uh, God, I pray as we look at this, this prophetic book that was written a long time ago, um, about 800 years before Jesus even walked the earth. And uh, Jesus' time seems like a long time ago to us. That you'd speak practically and directly into our hearts today. That you would have a word for us. And that you would speak and take the words that I say and put them into the lives of the people that hear them this morning and do something supernatural that I couldn't even guess right now as I'm praying. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, we've had, just to let you in on, on my life, my family and I have had a pretty emotional weekend. For those of you who don't know, maybe you've seen some of my, my wife put a Facebook post up and my mother-in-law that uh, my father-in-law, who's an elder at our church, his name is Dave Lenhart, uh, also is a leader in our men's ministry, has been a mentor to many of you, uh, drives the trailer, leads a small group, basically does whatever we ask him to do uh, for the church, he's a huge servant, had a, a stroke on Friday morning. It was a major stroke, and then they're still calling it a stroke, but there was actually a major aneurysm in his brain and is at the hospital, has been there um, all weekend since Friday morning, and uh, some of you have been praying and doing different things. Some of you might hear that and think, I better run up there. What hospital is it? The family's asking right now really for no visitors, uh, just as Dave needs to rest and the family is pretty exhausted as well. But on Friday when all of it happened, um, certainly wasn't the plan uh, for Friday morning. And so we got this call and then there's all these emotions that happen, right? Like there's the shock of it happening. And then we get there and there's sadness and finding how bad it is. And then there's praying for miracle. And so there's the hope of that. And then friends come and you're, they're blessing you, but then you're also trying to help them through the process. And there's all these things that happen, and, and I think it kind of culminated for Shannon and I on Friday night. We went back to our house after being with friends all day long, and we were talking, and I was talking about her dad, and some of you, you've heard me talk about him before, being a part of our church, and I'll tell personal stories. He's also kind of known as Mr. Fix-It, just so you know, and uh, periodically I'll tell a story of advice he gave me on fixing something around the house that I totally botched. That's just the way the story goes. Just, that's the rhythm of the stories, if you're wondering how that works, and uh, we went into our bedroom after we got home. The kids were out in the living room, and and uh, Shannon and I started talking. I said, do you remember the time when I told the story about catching a lawnmower on fire and I blamed it all on your dad? And she started laughing about that and we were laughing through some of those things and he's such a good sport about it even when he knows that I have a, it's my hearing problem. That I don't listen well is actually the issue. It's not always that he says bad things. And uh, so we're laughing about that and having a good time. Then we go out into the living room and we sit down with the girls and we start, you know, tell us your favorite thing about Papa and here's kind of what's going on and if you see him, here's what he looks like and then it's just weeping. You imagine these four little girls hearing about their, their grandpa and what's going on with that. And that's kind of a picture of the emotional roller coaster that this weekend has been for our family. And I was thinking, it's not a mistake, though. Why, why, why did you have that in light of what we're going to open up in God's Word in Hosea this, this morning? What is that? And I want to ask you this question today. Why is it that you can see something terrible on the news, like awful on the news? What, worse than you've ever experienced, than anyone you've ever loved has ever experienced. Starving kids you see a commercial for, and you think to yourself, all they want is my money, and you change the channel. Or some t mass murder, and you keep eating your potato chips, you just switch the channel. But something happens to someone that you're close to, and there's this whole gamut, this whole spectrum from laughing to crying of emotions that come with that. Why? I'm going to tell you the answer. It's a relationship. That's, you're connected with those people. And what are we talking about in the book of Hosea? We've been talking about a relationship that's closer than many of you have ever thought about before with God. And one of the things I love about this book is that God's so real and authentic, it doesn't just give us like doctrinal things to memorize and we get the facts right for a quiz when we stand before God someday in heaven. And so some of you, as we've opened up this book of Hosea and talked about how God wants to relate with you as husband, he wants to be intimate with you, he wants intimacy like a spouse wants intimacy with you, that's uncomfortable for some of you. Some of you it's new, some of you it's refreshing, some of you, you don't like it at all. But that's what he wants. Some of us, we're used to relating with God just as master. 
Like, you give the orders, I'm your servant, I'll do what you want me to do. Or Lord, and you know what? He is the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, but he's not just Lord of Lords, he's not just King of Kings. He wants intimate relationship with you. And with that, with relationship comes emotions. And so today what we're going to talk about are the emotions of God. I've titled today's message, The Incorruptible Emotions of God. The reason why I put incorruptible on there is because I want you to know they're different than our emotions. We're fickle in our feelings, and we're blown and tossed, and we change, and God's emotions are actually based on God's character. And so when he gets angry, he doesn't lose his temper in anger, but he has anger. When he has, when he has love, he's got a passionate love for you, but it's not blown and tossed by what you do. It's based on his own character, and so we have these incorruptible emotions of God that we're going to see today as we open up Hosea, and Hosea chapter 6, if you have your Bibles, where we left off last week. In Hosea chapter 6, we left off in verse 3, and so today we're going to start in verse 4. If you're new to turning to the book of Hosea, you haven't been with us throughout this series. It's right after the book of Daniel. It's the first of what's oftentimes referred to as the minor prophets, which are just smaller books that have God's prophetic word. And I believe God's got a prophetic word for each one of us here today. And what's happened in this book is that the first three chapters are really an illustration from Hosea's personal life where God says to Hosea, his prophet, you're my man, go take for yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. That's two times. I know some of you are counting. Some big smiles. I know some of you. Some of you have come to me and told me the count. Last week was Mother's Day, and I was preaching Hosea, and people in our congregation kept an official count. Do you want to know what the count was? First service, the word whore came out 15 times. Second service, the word whore came eight times. So this is like a little lower key service that we have together. If you've ever wondered, are they exactly the same? The sermons are not exactly the same. But you've got, that's chapter 1, verse 2, take for yourself a wife of whoredom, have children of whoredom, but the key is the next phrase. For, because, here's the reason, here's why I want, it's not just this crazy idea that God had one day, it's like, I wonder if I took like a man of God, man of the cloth, clergy guy, and told him to marry a prostitute, what would happen? Let's just see. It's like, not God's like divine experiment here. He says, here's why. Because the land commits great whoredom against me. Because my people commit spiritual adultery against me. And what is that? What does that mean? If you were here the first week, you know, we looked at James chapter 4 and verse 4. That's a New Testament verse. It says, you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world, being like the world, is enmity towards God? And so he's saying, what is adultery? What is it? You look at James, guess what you'll find in James? No heinous sins. The sins you find in James are things like gossip, slander, showing favoritism to people because they've got money or they've got position, uh, not paying attention to people because they've got needs and you just want to live your own comfortable life. God calls that spiritual adultery against him. We are an adulterous people, he's saying. He's showing us what does it look like to be, he knew when he united with you that he, he knew you were going to be unfaithful and he loved you anyways and he keeps coming after you and that's Hosea chapter 1, 2, and 3 and that's the personal life of Hosea the prophet. But what happens in chapter 4 is there's a transition. It's about 20 years later and so in chapters 1, 2, and 3, you get his personal life. In chapter 4, you start to get his public ministry. In chapter 4, he starts to give, the, this is what he goes and he preaches to the people. Now he's lived it with his wife, and his kids are kids of whoredom too. They're unfaithful as well. We haven't even talked about that. He's lived it with them. Now he's going to go preach it to the people. How does God feel about your sin? How does God want to relate with you? What are these emotions that God has? And so in chapter 4, we started by saying that God's speaking. God still speaks to you. Amen? Amen. His primary way of speaking to us is through his word. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 says he, he teaches us and rebukes us and reproves us and trains us in godliness. All those things expose our sin. That's uncomfortable. But it's for your good. And then sometimes we still deny it. And we saw in Hosea chapter 5 that God disciplines our denial. That's his grace. And then we saw in chapter 6, one of the most glorious chapters in all of Hosea is chapter 6 verses 1 through 3. And what he does is he's speaking to you is he invites you to come, return, and press on. Remember the invitation? It's three part. Come, first words. Hosea 6, 1. Come. You don't have to be where you're at. Come to me. That, what do you, how do you do that? Return. Let's go back. If you, back, maybe some of you, to your salvation. Back to a time when you love God more than you love God now. Back to a time when you didn't get in his word because Pastor Scott or Pastor John or Pastor Seth, somebody said, you better read your Bible because you long to hear from the living God you were in his word. To a time when, when you, your heart broke over lost people that they don't have the eternal life that you have. Eternal life is this, is to know Christ, John 17, 3. Now, they don't have that. They're going to spend eternity separated from God and hell, and it breaks your heart, not because they're some task that you have out there. 
You spend time in prayer, not to get what you want from God, because you want to commune with Him. Go back. Return. Whatever that... Come, return. Some of you are like, I've never had that moment. That's a problem. We'll talk about that today. But then there's the last part, press on. And so we oftentimes miss at church. We drive for a decision moment, and we miss the, the long game. It's press on. Press on, it's military terminology, to chase after. Press on to the knowledge of God, not just knowledge about God, not that you just know facts, not that these are your file cabinet, if you remember that object lesson, not that these are your belief system, not that you just need to know stuff about God, but you'd know Him intimately. You chase after Him, He's chasing after you. That's how this is supposed to look. But what we didn't talk about last week, we stopped, is how do they actually respond? And that's what we see in verse 4. And what we're going to see then are the emotions of God in light of their response. He says, what shall I do with you? Parents, have you ever said this before? What shall I do with you and his children? Oh, Ephraim, it's the northern part of Israel. There's a, they're divided, the kingdom's divided right now, northern and southern. So he says, what shall I do with you, O Judah? Ephraim's the northern, that's where Hosea primarily ministered. And then he says this, it's God speaking to the people through Hosea. Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. In other words, it's fickle. Here one minute, gone the next. You, you came forward, you, you made a decision, you said you were going to do something, but by the time you got to the parking lot, it was over. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets, I've slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment, and just FYI, chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, judgment of God. So it gets dark, it's going to get real dark. And my judgment goes forth, but it's to shine light as light. Why? What's happened? What's going on in the Lord's heart? For I desire, I want steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Let me summarize four, five, and six for you. God spoke to them, verses one through three, come, return, press on. I'm inviting you to come into intimate relationship with me. And they responded with sacrifices. Like how do they even, how do you read verses one, two, and three? And some of you might look at it in your own copy of the Bible. How would you even read that and think to yourself, God wants me to make a sacrifice? How does that even come across your He doesn't say anything about that. He's wanting a relationship. It's all the only way they know how to relate. Have you, ever, have you ever wondered before how two people can hear the very same thing and hear something totally different? One of our elders is a communications major in college, and he says to me all the time that communication is a receiver phenomenon, which is really strange for me in the role that I have, by the way. So it's not ironic to you. I'm the one with the microphone saying these things. I have no idea what happens to my words. By the time they leave my mouth, I know what I meant, but by the time they get to you, I don't know what's going to happen. I just trust the Holy Spirit to do something with them because two people can hear this very same thing and hear something totally different. Did any of you see the Yanny Laurel audio clip that was on social media this week? How many of you saw that? Did you see that? Just an idea in the audience here of how many of you saw that. And so what had happened was, the way I read about it, was that there was a Reddit user who posted on a forum just this audio clip with a simple question, what do you hear? And the internet blew up on what had happened. Within 24 hours of posting that audio clip, there were, I think it was over 310,000 statements on Twitter, just Twitter, so forget Instagram, Facebook, just Twitter, about the word Yanny, and it was like 330,000 about the word Laurel. And about 50, it was like 51% and 49% heard one thing or the other thing. And so I'm going to play the audio clip for you in just a moment. Those of you who haven't heard it, I'm going to ask you what you heard. All right? Tech team, we got that? I'm going to play that. Laurel. Laurel. Now, you know what really messed me up was I heard something different the first service. The same clip. How many of you heard the word Yanny? How many of you heard the word Laurel? All right, we got problems in this church. About 50-50 on here. We got this thing going on. You know what was fun? Fun this week was, to, I don't know if you did this at all or not. Those of you who have seen this and heard this already, did you read the comments people made that people were debating back and forth? I want to read to you a couple comments that were on the internet about this. So one parent said, oh, no, no, I'm not going to read those comments. Somebody was scared here about what I'm about to say. Uh, one parent said, honestly, in 17 years of being a parent, I've never thought less of my kids than when they said, Yanny. We know what the parent heard. One husband said, my wife hears Laurel. It all makes sense now. <laughs> One listener said, good morning to everyone except the person that made the Yanny Laurel video. Like you've messed up my life now. Isn't it interesting that two people can hear the very same thing and hear something totally different? 
Now, there's scientific answers to that about decibels and whether you hear, you know, I heard something different through the speaker or the first service than I did at my own computer, and I just heard that. It's like, what's going on with my ears? It's, here's the reality, because there's different people. And so different people hear different things. And, and as we're going through this, I read Hosea chapter 6, 1 through 3, and then I'm like in shock by the time I get to verse 6. It says, you brought a sacrifice? What is it? I didn't say anything about a sacrifice. Where did you hear that? How did you think that? And so it like boggles my mind, the same as some of you heard Yanny. I don't know why you're all wrong. <laughs> you know which one I heard. But the problem is, see, we read the Bible sometimes, and we read like Israel, and we think of one person, like Israel's all, they all are the same. And so I say good morning to you, you know, hi church family, good morning church Southbridge, and things like that. I'm talking to you corporately, but within the corporate body, there are all these different people. And that's true of Israel as well. There's three main audiences when Hosea is preaching, and there's three main audiences here today, just so you know. We fit into the same categories. So in Israel, you've got to understand there are some people that are of Israel that don't even claim to be followers of God. So there are some people that come to our church on Sunday morning. I've talked to them before. You don't even claim to be a follower of God for different reasons. Some of you, you want to prove that what I'm saying is not true. You want to solidify yourself in your own beliefs. And so you come, and that's why. Maybe you come, your spouse makes you come, or whatever reason you thought you'd give God a shot, and that's kind of your shot. Some people are skeptics when they come. They're like, they're wondering. They're genuinely wondering, is God real? What is this like? What are his people like? Get it. That's camp one. So I'm going to give you three camps, and you might even take notes, and just even ask yourself, which one do you fit into? So the camp one is like, I'm not, even, I'm not a believer, and it's clear. But they're still part of Israel. They're born into Israel. They're Jewish. Camp two is the people that think that they're genuine followers of Yahweh. They're genuine followers of God, but they're not. They don't have a relationship with him. And they can believe that they're genuine followers of Yahweh for whatever reason, because they were born into Israel. Maybe some of you just always gone to church. Maybe some of you have had some, some experience at one point with God. He made your liver quiver, and you think you're all good with him, and everything's all set for all of eternity, or whatever reason, you think that you and God are good. You believe the right stuff about him in your mind. Even the demons believe in shudder, just FYI. That's camp two, people who think they're believers, but they're not. And then there's camp three. Camp three is part of Israel as well, and it's part of people in our church, is you're a genuine believer. You're a genuine follower of God. And maybe you're backslidden, maybe you're walking away from God, maybe there's disobedience in your life, or maybe you're obedient. Either way, you're still in that camp that you're a genuine follower of God. And that was true for Israel too. And so different people hear different things when he speaks. Who he's speaking to here? In chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, FYI, are camps 1 and 2. So what I'm about to say to you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, does not apply to you. So I've said that before when we've had people, and I know there's like skeptics in the audience, and I'll say, hey, this is just to believers. I'm not talking to you. You can listen in. Here's what I hope happens if you're in camp 3 in your heart, is you think about all the people you know that are in camp 1 and 2, and your heart breaks. Because what we see when we talk about the emotions of God in chapter 6, picking up in verse 4, is this, that God's anger burns red hot against unrepentant people. And I, I'm, I was intentional about that last part. That it's not just his heart. I could have said his anger burns red hot against sin. Because many of you have heard this statement before. I love the sinner, hate the sin. That's good counsel for us as people who don't, aren't all-knowing, who aren't holy, who don't know. That's, that's a good place for us to be. That is a, that's not God. God is holy. His anger is based on his holiness. His anger, his anger burns red hot because it's defaming his glory if he just looks the other way on these things. He's passionate about his own glory. It's not just so you can have your best life now, by the way. And it's not that he cast sin into hell. It's sinners that get cast into hell. And there are people in our community, probably in this room right now, that are like, they're like hanging over. Have you heard the sermon, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by John, Jonathan Edwards, part of the Great Awakening? Let me tell you something. We need a Great Awakening as America. We don't want to talk about an angry God. Amen. There are some people that are hanging over the furnace of hell by a spider web. And they don't know it, and most of the church doesn't care. And God is... His anger, his wrath is coming against them. Now, I understand. I understand. Many people don't want to hear this, and some of you might be even tempted to get up and leave right in this moment. I'm not offended, just so you know. You can. We live in a time where we don't want to talk about a father who gets angry. We live in a time where we'd rather have a heavenly Santa Claus than a heavenly father who brings us gifts. We have like a benevolent uncle is kind of how we think about God. Like God shows up, he gives gifts, tells some good stories, then he's out. Parents are all up in your business. God is intimately involved in your life. 
There's nothing that's hidden from his face, and he despises all ungodliness. And so when you have sin, sin's not just this thing that's out here. It's in here. It's part of who we are. We have a deceptive heart, and we long for deception. And God's wrath comes against us apart from Christ. If, you don't, if you're in camp three, I'm talking about you. Camps one, two, definitely talking to you. God's red-hot anger is burning against you. And you see it here. Why? What does he want? Verse 6. I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. Let me, let me clarify this before we start unpacking this verse. God's not against sacrifices, okay? Read the book of Leviticus. There's a whole bunch of stuff about sacrifice. Some of you start reading through the Bible in a year and you get to Leviticus. It's like stops right there. So you read a verse like this and you're like, good, he doesn't need me to read that. No, he's not against it. You see sacrifice in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. You can check it on your own later. That, that Abel brought a better sacrifice than Cain. That's what, that's what happened in that, in that story, in that situation. We're supposed to be, Romans chapter 12, New Testament believers under the blood of Christ, we're supposed to be a living sacrifice that's holy and pleasing, that is our offering, our spiritual act of worship to God, is that our lives would be a sacrifice to God. It's because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that he paid our debt, the propitiation we sang about, we saw the verse about as we were going through worship, he did that for us. It's because of his sacrifice we can have a relationship with God. God's not anti-sacrifice. He's anti-sacrifice without the first part of the verse, without love. I desire steadfast love. It's the Hebrew word hesed, or chesed, if you're going to say it the right way. I won't keep saying it that way, but you're welcome, front row. I won't keep saying it that way. So I desire hesed. I desire, it says here, steadfast love. It's It's the word that's used a lot in the book of Ruth, if you're familiar with Ruth and the way that Ruth loves Naomi. And even when Naomi says, you go back to her, she says, she's faithfully, loyally going to love. Sometimes it's translated loyal love, loving kindness. The problem for English translators with the Hebrew word hesed is we don't really have a good English word for it. And so they try to put a bunch of other words around it to try and explain it because our, what we think of when we think of love doesn't even, it pales in comparison. This is God's everlasting, unfailing, restoring, unrelentless love for you. And God's saying, I want that kind of love from you. That's what I wanted. This is the way I love you. This is the love that I want in return. And you're bringing me sacrifices? Like, I want love and you're up in your tithe? You just, you decide I'm going to go to church three weeks instead of four weeks in a row. Or two, whatever. I'm not good at math. That's a good thing. I'm going to start serving the bridge kids more. I'm going to sing the songs instead of just standing there and watching. So, no, I want your heart. I don't want what you do. When Jesus is asking the New Testament, he says, what's the greatest commandment? What does he say? He doesn't say, tithe more, sign up for the worship team, go serve in bridge kids. Some of the pastors wish you'd do that. <laughs> That's not what God says. God says, love God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind all of who you are. And the second commandment is love your neighbor. It's a lot like it because that's what overflows out of that. One of, one, one of the rabbis, famous rabbi back in just before Jesus' time was asked, you know, what's the summary? Tell me the law. Could you stand on one foot and recite the law? And he said, yeah, love God. The rest of it's commentary. That's the whole, do you want a summary of the whole Bible? There it is. Love God. And it'll overflow into loving people. And then the, the sacrifices, those will flow out of that. He's not asking for you to do stuff for him. He wants you to be in relationship with him. And when you're not, he hates that. If, let me just ask you this question, you can ponder this all week. If the greatest commandment is to love God, what's the greatest sin? It's to fail to love God. And so his red-hot, burning anger comes against unrepentant people, people who don't love God and aren't turning to love God. And so you think about, when's, when's the time that you've been the most angry in your life? I'm thinking about it on my own emotions, and it was actually a lot closer to today than I wish it was. I wish it was like 30 years ago. There was this time when I was a little kid, and I got mad. No, it was last Sunday was Mother's Day, just to put this into context. I preached to you that morning, <laughs> and then I took my wife to lunch with the kids. The kids didn't pay. What good was that? Like, it's Mother's Day. I had to pay for the lunch, and then <laughs> we got home, and my wife went to take a nap, and the kids didn't take a nap, and there's where our problem began. And they were, it wasn't one. And so if you're like, if you work in Bridge Kids, you're going to try and figure out which one of you did it. Don't do that to my kids, please. But I'm going to tell you the story for, to share with me, my own heart. Um, some of them were being deceptive, which I, that, that doesn't go over well at all at our house. Uh, some of them were being mean to the other ones. There were some words that were shared. And so there's lots of things I could share with you to justify what I'm about to tell you, which is what I'm doing right now. 
I got so mad at them last Sunday. I've never been this mad at my kids before. I was so mad. I was yelling at them one time, and I was looking at one of them who was like twisting my words and like trying to get around the thing. And then she goes, are you saying this is my fault? I goes, a thousand percent this is your fault. Like I'm, I am so exaggerated. I'm over the top. I am confident that my name, I have air conditioning. The windows are closed. The doors are closed. My neighbors have air conditioning. Their windows are closed. Their doors. I'm pretty confident they could hear me inside their house. That's how much I was yelling. Banging my hand on the table like, would you just get this? I actually thought to myself when it was done, there is not a person who heard me preach this morning that would say, I'm so glad that's my pastor in this moment. Because <laughs> here's why. I, it's, it's not possible for me to get that angry and not sin. It is possible, his incorruptible emotions. It is possible for God because it's based on his holiness. It is possible for God. Our, the most angry you've ever been doesn't hold a candle to how angry God is against unrepentant people. And if you don't believe me, we're not going to read every verse of chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10, but you, gotta go, you should. And you, at the very base level, you're going to read it and go, he's ticked. But who is it? Look at what he says, verse 7. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. What happened with Adam? Adam didn't have much of a covenant. Hey, you can have everything you want, one restriction. And he doesn't obey that. Why? Because he thought he knew better than God. Because he thought that God was holding out on him. Because he believed a lie. Because he decided to be passive. And you know what? The reality is, we've all done the same thing. Proverbs says, Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. Eve wasn't innocent either. There's a way that seems right to man and woman, and in the end it leads to death. Here's the reality. We don't believe that verse. You can hear it at church. The wage of sin is death. Yep. Mm-hmm. We don't think that sin actually has those consequences or else we wouldn't be messing with sin. And, and what you see as you go through this is, no, 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 it really does. And he starts to unpack it. And he talks about basically what's happening at his wrath for unrepentant people on this earth is a little taste of hell for them, of what's going to happen for eternity. And he starts at first showing their sin. Look at verse 9 in chapter 6. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so think about what he's comparing to, so the priests, the religious leaders, band together, they murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. Now, we don't know. We actually don't know for sure. Nobody knows for sure what's exactly behind, historically, behind this verse. Were the priests actually murdering people? Which is not impossible. Or is it like earlier, when we were reading 4, 5, and 6, is it like earlier when he was holding the priest accountable for their not teaching God's word, and therefore, that's why culture was the way that it was? I don't know. But there's a violent culture. Do you think we live in a violent culture? You watch the news this week? I saw one news outlet that was saying about the shooting that happened in Houston this week, that it was the 20th school shooting. Wait, this year. What's our role in that church? How is history going to look back on this? Bigger question, how does God look at this? Because if it's unrepentant people that his wrath is coming against, what role should the church be playing in repenting? Not repenting, you're not guilty of the shooting, you didn't do the shooting, but you should be lead repenters in repenting of your own sin as an example to our culture. And so you think about, we, you, oh God, I just hate that there's so much of this and all these evils out in the world. No, we lead from our own lives and dealing with the anger in our hearts, the bitterness that we don't want to deal with, and the unforgiveness that's in our hearts, and all of those things... And then we're, we're leading in the world. As, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you don't just repent at the beginning of your relationship, by the way. Repentance is a regular part of your relationship. So here the priests were not doing that. And then you go on and you see more in chapter uh, 7 and verse 2. So they don't consider, they don't even think about, these people don't even think about the fact that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them and they're before my face. Now you've got to think about here what's happening and then also who's speaking. Let me tell you something. If you're in camp one or two, and you think, well, how can God punish me for sins that I do now for all of eternity? That doesn't seem fair. Well, you're forgetting that you're actually sinning against an eternal God. It's the violation of who he is and his being. It's, the, it's not the weight of, all I did was I stole a cookie, or all I did was I had a lustful thought, all I did was, no, 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 you're not, you don't have a good measuring system. You're sinning against a holy God. His standard is perfection. You'll spend all of eternity separated from him, and there's not one sin that misses his face. There's nothing you get away with, is what he's saying here. So going back into the, the parent analogy, I'll give you a little tip. If you're a parent, pro tip, come in here, just so you listen up, you pay attention. You ever clean your, parent, your kid's room for you as a parent? Yeah, don't do that. That's a bad idea. That's the pro tip. 
I went up the other day to my kid's room. Uh, just to, so you know, one of the rules in our house is no food in your bedrooms. The bedrooms are upstairs. You're supposed to keep the food downstairs. I went to move their bed. That was a mistake. I'm just going to wait till they're 20. I'm like, I'm not messing with that ever again. You find a bunch of stuff, and it'll be like memory lane, where rather than, what are you doing? Like now. And so I move one of their beds. There is a plate with silverware and food underneath their bed. How did that even happen? Like, how did you get that up the steps? How did this, why, why were you thinking? And I missed it. Let me tell you something. God doesn't miss a thing. There's no sin that we commit that he does not see. That's not before his face. And did you read? Did you read what happens here? Their deeds surround them. It's like you're hedged in by your sin. Almost like you're trapped by the sin. Verse 16, you go through chapter 7 and you see there's some analogies here. Woe to them, for they strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. Verse 13, they do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. There is misery, but they don't come to me. And then you get to verse 16, and remember what happened. He called for repentance, verses chapter 6, verse 1 through 3, come, return, press on. But then verse 16 of chapter 7 says, they return, but not to me. Not upward, the ESV says, or some of your translations say, not to the most high. They turn, even their repentance is wrong. Even when they do turn, even when they do walk the aisle, even when they do in their, in their bedroom pray, even when, when they get convicted of their sin, when they get caught in their sin, they're, they're doing things like this. Does this sound familiar? I don't want to deal with the consequences. I want to, it's, the, it's the spouse who gets caught in adultery rather than confessing their adultery and then downplays it and minimizes it because they don't want to lose their marriage. It's the person who doesn't want to lose their job, and so they tell a little white lie, but they confess enough, but then he's saying here, you don't even, you're not even turning back to me. You're trying to deal with your consequences. You're trying to do image management, a little PR for your personal life. He says, you don't want me. Then chapter 8, he reveals some very heinous sins that remember the analogy is chapters 1, 2, and 3. Chapters 1, 2, and 3, here we see all these emotions about these sins. Did you ever ask yourself the question, why is it? Did you notice this when we were studying chapters 1, 2, and 3, that we'd never see the emotions of Hosea? He's told, go take for yourself a wife, and it's like he goes, okay. And go, go marry her again, okay. Why is it that we don't, here's why, because chapters 1, 2, and 3 are an illustration. Do you know what an illustration is supposed to do? An illustration is not supposed to take the center stage. The illustration shines a light on the truth. The illustration is not illustrating, it's not, this book isn't about Hosea, this book is about God. And these are the emotions of God. And this is what God considers spiritual adultery. Chapter 8 lays them all out. You want to start guessing what chapter 8 says? Let me tell you what they are. See if any of you can identify with these. Self-reliance. So you might expect some heinous sin. No, no, no. Self-reliance. Uh, you're picking government officials without consulting me. Uh, you're, you're, you're going after these alliances. When you do have a problem in your life, you think that you're going to financially solve it or politically solve it or you're going to educate it. Let me tell you something. You can't educate or legislate. Heart change. You've got a heart problem. And you're not coming to me. And then it says they create their own religion. Sound familiar? Not just do we want a heavenly Santa Claus. Think about what the things we do and say in the name of Jesus. How many people do you see talking about Jesus going, he says, take up your cross, deny yourself, follow me. That's not the religion that we've developed. We want a Jesus that helps us fulfill the American dream that's going to give me my best life now that exists for the sake of my happiness. He's like my genie. <laughs> if you want to save your life, lose it. What came from the lips of Jesus and what is a religion we've created as the American church? If anyone comes after me. Anyone? Anyone? Really? Because can't we just kind of do an Americanized version of that? Don't you want me to be happy, Jesus? And chapter 9 talks about the consequences. Chapter 9, you've got, if you want to take notes on this, we won't read it all. Verses 1 and 2, loss of joy. Verses 3 through 5, loss of spiritual privileges. Verse 6, loss of inheritance. Verses 7 through 9, loss of hope. Verse 16 and 17, you see the final rejection. And look at this. We're doing a series called Unfailing Love. I will love them no more, verse 15. All their princes are rebels. My God will reject them, verse 17. Because they have not listened to him, they shall be wanderers among the nations. It's God's wrath. His wrath, his anger burns red hot against unrepentant people. Remember he's talking to Camp 3. Camp 3, you're not in this. It's Camps 1 and 2. And then you see some of the cause of why. Chapter 10, verse 2. Their heart is false. Oh, poor them. They're innocent victims. Someone just needs to fix their heart. I'll read the rest of the verse. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. 
You want a summary, by the way? Go back to chapter 8 and verse 7. They sow the wind, they reap the whirlwind. What does that mean? Well, wind means it's a lax substance. (laughs) Sound American? Listen to this. So what about the vanity, vanity, all is vanity, all the things we go after? Power, money, sex, appreciation, other people's views of us, all these things. You sow nothingness is what this is saying. You're sowing vanity. You're sowing into nothing, and you reap. Now, those of you that are math people, those of you like problem solve for your job, you'd be like, the equation should go, I sow nothing, I get nothing. No, that's not what it says. Because you sow nothingness, you sow vanity, and your life is a mess. That's a whirlwind. Chaos. You, sow, you pursue, you think the sex is going to deliver, your life's a mess. You think that money's going to do it, and you mess up your life. You think this? Chapter 10 says it's because your heart is deceptive. Some translations say it's a smooth heart. But you're guilty of that. It's not like your heart, it's not like this thing that's out here no, it's you as a person. The Bible also says in Jeremiah chapter 17 that the heart is deceptive and wicked, deceitful above all things. Oh, the sickness of the heart. Who can heal it? In the New Testament, it says this in, in James, in James chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, it says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed, not by some power out there, by his own desire. You are guilty. Then desire, when it conceives, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. There's the ultimate consequence every time. Then he says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Don't be deceived. Here's the problem. Our heart is so sick, Jeremiah chapter 17. We want to be deceived. We want lies. We want to be like Adam in the garden. We want to go after other things. It's easier. It's more transactional. If we think it's going to bring immediate satisfaction, we long for those things, and we sow wind, and we reap a whirlwind, and that's where these people are at, and God's red-hot anger is burning against them, and so is he against every person in Raleigh-Durham that's in Camp 1, not believers. Camp 2, think they're believers, not believers. But not against Camp 3. Not against Camp 3, because that was poured out on the cross but your heart should break for camps one and two. And then you keep reading chapter 10. Chapter 10 talks about sin at the beginning, talks about shame, talks about sorrow, talks about suffering. And then you get to verses uh, 9, 10, 11 in chapter 10, and you've got the sentence or the, 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 the penalty for the sin. And so you look at it. When, when I please, I will discipline them. The nations shall be gathered against them. Uh, they are bound up for their double iniquity. And then he talks about what some of the sin was. But then verse 12 Verse 12 is like a glimmer of hope amongst a... Remember I told you, chapter 6, darkness, 7, darkness, 8, darkness, 9, darkness, 10, darkness. But verse 12, it stands out like if you put a diamond on a black cloth. Verse 12 shows us some hope. Here's the hope. There's a pathway to repentance, but it's our brokenness. That's our second point. There's a pathway to repentance, and it's our brokenness. And this one actually would apply to all three camps, by the way. Because even though you begin with repentance, you've got to have that initial repentance to be in camp three, but then you continue to repent. And God gives us a gift, and it's a gift of brokenness. Look what he says. Remember he said, sow the wind, reap the whirlwind? Look what he says in verse 12. Sow for yourselves righteousness and reap hesed. What were we lacking? I wanted hesed. You brought a sacrifice. You don't have hesed. You don't have loyal love. He says, sow for yourself righteousness. You want what you're lacking, and you will reap loyal love, steadfast love. How? How? Break up your follow ground, for it is the time to seek the Lord. Now is the time to seek the Lord, that he may come, and you were reaping a whirlwind, that he would rain righteousness upon you, that he'd he'd rain salvation on you, that he'd rain joy on you, that he'd rain spiritual privilege and inheritance on you. That's what he's going to rain on, but you've got to, but how does it happen? The key here, the pathway here, is a path of brokenness. He uses this analogy of follow ground. Follow ground is ground that hasn't been tilled. So it can be really hard, or it can just be untouched, like weeds growing up on it, and it's just there in different levels. Now, I don't have a green thumb, but periodically, I will decide to do some landscaping around my house. Like, I'll be at Lowe's or, or Walmart or whatever, and I'll walk by a tree, and I'm like, that tree's only 10 bucks. I could do that. We should, I should put that tree at my house. And so, so what do I have to do? I'm reading the pot, and the pot's like, dig a hole two feet wide by two feet deep. I'm like, I can do that. Six hours later, and a loss of sanctification in the process... What ends up happening is you're like, have you dug here? How many of you have dug? Like, try to do, do some digging here in Raleigh. Uh, the clay doesn't bother me. The clay is awesome. I'm pretty confident that my house is built on what was formerly a rock quarry. Yeah, yeah. Some other people here, you know what I'm talking about? Because I'll go to dig and it's like, like, 
It didn't go anywhere. It's like, dink, like it goes about two inches underneath the ground. It's like, all right, now I need like a, a pickaxe. Like I'm out there like, that's the sound of the man. Like I'm out there digging in the <laughs> background. And it doesn't, the stuff that I'm saying to myself, again, you'd be like, that's not my pastor. Like out there in that, in that moment. But what happens is you dig underneath the surface. And you get underneath the surface a little bit. And then these, like I got to get down on my hands and knees and pull rocks out of the ground. That's what happens. Follow ground. The rocks, that's our sin. But in order to get to the, you've got to break you. got to break you to get there. Now, that threatens our God of comfort in this world, by the way. And we don't like that. But this is key for spiritual breakthrough, brokenness. Would you pray for brokenness? How do you know if you've got brokenness? Here's how you know. When your sin gets brought up, it's how you respond to it. Two classic examples in the Old Testament, uh, if you want to know about brokenness, are the first two kings of Israel, Saul and David. You read about the first king, Saul, in 1 Samuel. You read about the second king, David, in 2 Samuel. So you can read 1 Samuel chapter 15 if you want to come read these stories I'm about to share with you. And you read uh, 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12 if you want to read about David. I'm going to tell you both of their sin. Both of them were called by God to be the king of Israel. Both of them blew it and didn't follow God's will. Let me tell you how they both blew it, and you tell me whose sin you think is worse, or you can just keep it in your own mind. Here's the first king, Saul, he blew it. In chapter 13 of 1 Samuel, he wasn't patient. He didn't wait for Samuel to show up. For to offer a sacrifice. And then in chapter 15, he only did partial obedience, not complete obedience. He didn't annihilate all the Amalekites, only most of the Amalekites. And so his sins, impatience, partial obedience. David's sins, murder and adultery. You can think in your own mind whose sins were worse. Ever been guilty of impatience and partial obedience? Ever been guilty of murder, adultery? What sins do you think are worse? I know what our culture thinks for sure. And what happens might be astounding is that, that Saul, he had the kingdom stripped from him and God's favor was removed from him. David was forgiven. In case you missed the story, David's the guy who committed adultery and murder. The key is how they both responded. When Saul was confronted with his sin, he tried to make it seem like it's less, not a big deal. Here's why. No, I'm actually going to and try to talk, like twist the words and I'm going to make this for the Lord, my disobedience and minimized, justified, rationalized, and then finally confesses. And you can, if you start really looking at the past, you can see it wasn't even a real confession. He showed that even in his confession, he lacked a broken heart. Do you know what David did? Both of them had a prophet confront them. Do you know what David did when the prophet confronted him? I've sinned against the Lord. What do you do when you're made aware of your sin? That reveals whether you have a heart of brokenness. I dare you to pray for brokenness. What would it look like? What would it take to break your heart? I'll tell you, in my own life, I mentioned to you what was going on uh, this week with my father-in-law, Dave, going to the hospital. That was on Friday. On that same day, we received an email that brought up a bunch of emotions for me. Now, I'm going to kind of drop a bomb on some of you and not tell the details of a big story, but I'll try to do it justice. If you haven't been part of our church, you don't know the story. If you have, you've heard me share this story before, but two years ago, our daughter was abducted from our front yard and... What I haven't shared with you is a bunch of the details of the court process and my feelings toward the guy who did this stuff. Um, for those of you who don't know the story, she was returned to us really quickly. She was not hurt or abused or anything like that. Um, but I was not happy with the person who did it, to summarize real, real briefly. Then we get this email on Friday saying that it's now time. We've been waiting for two years for this email. There's been interactions and meetings and all kinds of stuff that have happened uh, for a court date for his plea agreement. Earlier this week, not by happenstance, God's sovereignty, I had heard a pastor share a hypothetical story that I'm going to share with you that raised different emotions in me. And the story was, he said, imagine what if your six-year-old daughter was abducted? He had my attention at that moment. And he said, and she was abused in every way imaginable, then chopped up into pieces and buried in the ground. Um... I'm not happy listening to the story at this moment, just to let you know. And then a month later, they catch, they apprehend the guy, and he's going to stand trial. And he said, you've got two choices of what you can do. He says, you can go there with a weapon and seek vengeance, or you can hand it over to the criminal justice system. Those are your two choices. You can decide in your mind what you think you would do. And then he said, but what if there's a third choice? And maybe through a contact, some of you are legal people, and you'd be like, oh, that would never happen. What if there's a third choice? And, and what if you got to go visit this person after the trial? And so you got to go into the prison, walk by the other inmates. You walk by all the iron bars and see all of those guys. But then you go into his cell, and you sit there face to face with him. 
and you have an opportunity to look them in the eye and say, I forgive you. Let me tell you something. I could see that that's, you know, pastors, you get the feel of these stories after you've heard a few of them. I, I knew that's where this story was going. I wasn't ready for what he said next. He said, and then what if you offered him, you extended to him, you said, and I'd like to adopt you into my family as my own son. And I'll tell you, I thought, I, I, I'm not ready. I'm okay with saying I forgive you. You just stay a distant and away, and I don't want relationship, and you're not safe. Those are my feelings inside. Adopt, that's what God did to me. That's what he does to you. He adopts you into his family. But you're the, you're, what about all the wrath? What about chapter 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 and 10? Does God just decide, oh no, oh, don't worry about it, we're good. Sometimes that's how we talk about grace. That's such cheap grace. You've got to understand the darkness of 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 to understand the cross. Do you know what he does with his wrath? He poured it on his own son. All of his wrath, all of that anger, all that brokenness, all, that all came on Jesus Christ on the cross. If you're in camp three, that's why there's no wrath coming against you because it all went on Jesus Christ. doesn't mean that God doesn't have wrath. It means that you're not going to have to pay the penalty of it because Jesus did for you on the cross when he was beaten, when he was flogged, when he was. We can talk about all the physical parts of that, but he was forsaken by his father. He was put in a grave for you. And it's one thing for, for me to say to you, your sins nailed him to the cross. That, that you're adopted into his family. Just John chapter 1, verse 12. Everyone who believes in him, he has the right to be called a child of God. Ephesians chapter 1, you get to be a son and daughter. It's one thing for you to put that in your mind. It's another thing for that to penetrate your heart. In order for it to penetrate your heart, he's got to break the follow ground. Does, that, does the weight of your sin break you? Because it should. That's the pathway. That's the pathway to Repentance. That's wrath, his anger burns red hot against the unrepentant, but he gives a pathway to repentance. And then he goes on, and it's still dark after this because they don't respond well in chapter 10. And then verse, chapter 11 is one of the most emotional chapters in all of the Old Testament, maybe in all the Bible. Because in chapter 11, what we see, we see his anger in chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. We see his compassion in chapter 11. And so you want a third point? The third point is this, that God's compassion is tender towards his people. Now we're talking to audience three. Now we're talking to the genuine believers. Maybe backslidden, maybe not perfect, but in pursuit. He says this. He changes the analogy from husband and wife in chapters one, two, and three. And here he talks about a child. He talks like a father to his child. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Remember that story? The freeing from bondage. Now you're worshiping gods that, that don't love you back. How many of us do that? In your pursuit, a God that never delivered you. Remember Exodus chapter 32? They make, a, they make an idol. They make an idol and say, this God delivered us. No, he didn't. And we make up these images of Jesus. That Jesus didn't deliver you. It's the Jesus of the Bible. So the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to Baals and burning offerings to idols. And then he talks about his love, and we don't have time to go through each verse, but his compassion we see in verses 3 and 4, but then his wrath again in verses 5 through 7. Verse 7, he says, My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. And it's, here's what I love about Hosea. It's so real. It's not just, oh, I love you, we're good. No, I'm, I'm ticked off at your sin, but I won't stop loving you at the same time. And we get that tension between verses 7 and 8. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wipe them out. But then he says in verse 8, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? Remember how we started in chapter 6. What am I going to do with you, O Ephraim? How am I going to give I can't give you up, O Ephraim. You're my kid. How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Admah? Admah? How can I treat you like Zeboam? Those are cities that if you read the book of Deuteronomy, they're associated with Sodom and Gomorrah. They were totally annihilated because of God's wrath. He's saying, I can't totally wipe you out. I might bring discipline in your life as a believer, and it might be painful, but it's to bring you to repentance. It's for your good. My anger even comes out of my love. It's because I care. If I didn't, if I didn't get angry, I'd be apathetic, but I care. But then he says, here, my heart recoils within me. You want the roller coaster? You want all, all the different spectrum of emotions? My heart recoils within me. It's an image of, if you ever had that experience where, where you've cried and you can feel it coming, it's like Jesus, when he looks out and he says, my pe these people are like sheep without a shepherd. He felt compassion for them. He was moved in his bowels, is the, the Greek translation of that. It says, my heart recoils within me. 
It says, my compassion grows warm and tender. And in verse 9, this is great news if you're in camp 3, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. Four, here's why, here's why. Why do you think he won't do it? Why do you think he wouldn't destroy you? Why do you think he wouldn't annihilate you? It's not because of what you do. Look what he says. For I am God and not a man. My ways are not your ways. He doesn't respond out of bitterness. He's not doing what many of us would do. He's, and, and what is it rooted in? It's his character. Just as his anger is rooted in his holiness, he says the Holy One, it's his holiness that his compassion comes out of. The Holy One who's different, other, but ever-present in your midst. The Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. Now, a lot of Bible commentators have a hard time with that verse because what happens historically after this is in 722 B.C. is he does come in wrath. And Assyria from the north, which he's been threatening in chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, they come. And they leave, the people are led into, Ephraim is led into exile. And you go, well, God didn't keep his word. He says he wouldn't come in wrath, and then wrath comes. No, no, here's where you need to understand. There's three different parts of the audience. One and two, they experience God's wrath. One and two are going to experience God's wrath. Some of them died, and it wasn't just that Assyria took over and they were taken out of their land. They're spending eternity in hell separated from God. But there was three. There was three. There were genuine believers there. There's always a remnant in Israel. There's always a remnant. And they came back into the land. And God uses that as discipline to purify them, to break them, to lead them to more repentance. What he wants, what does he long for? Hesed. I want lo- I loyal love you. I want you to love me back. That's why he's coming after you. That's why he has emotions for you, because of relationship with you. Do you love him? That's really the simple question today. Do you love him? Let's pray. Father, we come before you. And these are difficult verses to read because it's not what our ears want to hear, but God, I pray you get it into our heart. That your anger is red hot against unrepentant people. I pray that there's an unrepentant person that's hearing these words online in this room at this moment, that you would pierce their heart. You'd break the follow ground. You'd pull up the sin that they don't want to deal with, the, the consequences they want to avoid, the, the shame, the guilt. You'd put your hands so heavy upon them they couldn't even move apart from turning to you. You're going to make them miserable until they turn to you. God, I pray that they would turn to you. God, I pray for believers to hear these words. I pray you'd give us a burden in our hearts for those that don't know you. For They might move around and everything looks like it's good. They're so in the wind. God, I pray that you give us the boldness to share with them what you've given us. And God, I pray for believers that are, that are walking away from you, that aren't as close with you as they've ever been before, that now would be a time of repentance, now would be a time of turning to you, now would be a time of renewing love with you, now would be a time of embracing and receiving the love that you have for them. But your heart recoils at the idea of annihilating us because we're your people. There's nothing that can separate us from your love, that your love would overwhelm us in this moment. Thank you for your love. And while our love's imperfect, we give, we give back our love, what we have to offer you. Make us love you more. We can't even love you without your gift. Will you help us to love you in Jesus' name?